This is the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast, and I am Mike Riccio, longtime personal trainer, professional strength coach, gym owner, and most importantly, a devoted modern father and husband. I've been fortunate to learn under some of the most intelligent minds in health and fitness over the past 15 years, as well as work with amazing clients and athletes. What I've most fallen in love with over the years is the power we have over our lives, the power to decrease risk of disease and injury, the power to reach our true potential, the deep abilities the body is capable of when all aspects of health are working simultaneously. On this podcast, you will learn the importance of preventative health and how to optimize your habits to optimize your life. Today, we are joined by Dr. Matthew Tolstoy. Matt is a clinician with a really unique and fascinating background. He holds his doctoral degree in Chinese health and acupuncture. He is a licensed acupuncturist and somatic experience practitioner. He has completed a three-year training program in trauma therapy. He is certified by the International Association of Counselors and Therapists, as well as the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Before all that, Matt was a trainer. Him and I worked for the same company, unknowingly, me in Chicago, him in New York. And we are connected by a fellow colleague. What I really wanted to talk to Matt about was not only what he does specifically, how he works with his patients, the lens in which he works at, how he looks at not only physical pain, but also anxiety and stress and the possible neurological disorders and how everything might have the same root base causes. You know, and I say everything generally, but Matt really takes an open door approach, meaning what is the reason someone comes to him? How does his assessment process lead to really pulling the layers back and finding the best way to treat the patients that are in front of him? We also get outside of his office. We talk a little bit about today's health practices, today's medical systems, and we talk about stress. What is properly dose stress? How much is too much, but how much is not affecting us in a positive way? And lastly, we get into the idea of self-limiting beliefs. How do your preconceptions, how does your experience maybe put up some walls that could be limiting you in seeing progress, not only if you're trying to get out of pain or decrease stress, but also in general in the world of seeing results. Again, we get into a ton of stuff. Matt's experience and background makes this such a fascinating conversation and I'm really excited for you to listen to it. So enough from me. Go and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Matthew Tolstoy. All right, listeners, we are on, uh, as you can see, repping the DGN shirt today for my local listeners. Today's the day that Downers Grove is playing in the final four for the state championship. So hopefully by the time this recording comes out, uh, we are uh, celebrating a win, a big win here in Downers Grove. So that's for the local listeners. Uh, in the meantime, Matt Tolstoy is on with us. Uh, Matt, really appreciate the time, man. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. It was great to connect. Um, like we'll get into today, you know, so much of our stories are, are so interconnected and we've been on a similar trajectory. So I'm really excited to uh, to explore that in this kind of public way. Uh, you and I both. I was telling a client this morning, um, she was asking, you know, oh, well, who's your guest today? Because I said I had a recording. And, you know, I said, I your perspective I think because, you know, we both came up not through Equinox, but both at some point worked at Equinox where we had at least very similar educational background for one point in our lives. But that perspective from a training perspective, the one-on-one -on -one time you spent, I think it brings just a very unique perspective in terms of how you explain things and how you look at things. And I just, I love it. So um, you tell us though, you know, what is, you know, what is your background, Matt? What do you do today? Yeah, for sure. Well, like you mentioned, um, you know, I got my start at Equinox, you know, uh, in New York City. I just kind of like my clueless, like 20 year old self, like toddled into the, you know, Columbus Circle Equinox and was like, hi, I'm a trainer and I want a job. And they hired me, you know, and so I spent <laughs> I spent seven years uh, at Equinox, went through, you know, their curriculum, did the whole uh, tier four, tier X thing, you know, and, and that was just such a fundamental uh experience for me in terms of shaping the direction of my career and you know we'll get we'll get into the specifics of that uh i guess in a little bit as we chat but to do just the general overview okay yeah i started in fitness and i knew pretty uh quickly on in the process that i wanted to work in like a clinical capacity 
I think, you know, as is standard for Equinox, you know, I was sent to like an FMS workshop with Lee Burton in-house, like within two months or something. And it was one of those moments of like, oh, wow, okay, this is, this is the thing that I really want to do. You know, when I, when I, uh, you know, I was into fitness and, you know, I showed up, but like, I had no idea that this whole other aspect of working with people on their movement, working with people on their lifestyle and how powerful that could be. And then, so then I would like see that happen in clients over time. And it was like, okay, this is really compelling to me, but I kind of want to work, uh, in a more clinical setting as opposed to just in fitness and wellness, like those types of problems were compelling to me. And so I knew I wanted to get a license, but I really wasn't entirely sure uh, what pathway I was going to go. Was I going to go to PT? Was I going to do Cairo? Was I going to do something mm -hmm. totally different? And because of my experience at Equinox, I was fortunate enough to have people on the clinical side, you know, who do education for the company, who are on the advisory boards that I had access to. And I was asking a lot of people, and I said, well, this is kind of what I want to do. And a surprising number of people recommended that I take a serious look at acupuncture and Chinese medicine. And uh, I just never thought about it before. I'd never really thought about that as an option. I mean, I knew what acupuncture was, but it wasn't something that was clear on my radar. And so I started to research a little bit more. I started to get treated. And really what sealed the deal for me was um, I knew that I wanted to work with people who had uh, physical issues, you know, pain, chronic pain, movement limitations. And I also wanted to work with people in their overlap with their psychological experiences. That it wasn't just going to be about your elbow ouchie, you know, although that might be the, the access point that, um, a key feature of Chinese medicine that I really do still appreciate, even though I don't practice traditional Chinese medicine in its traditional form. We'll talk about that later, I'm sure. But a fundamental principle is like, everything is about the relationship between things. Like something by itself doesn't matter that much. It's the relationship. And so we see that from a functional movement standpoint where we talk about it's all regional interdependence. It's not just your back, it's your back and your hips and your T-spine and your, like the patterns are there, but that's not just in the musculoskeletal system, that's in all systems of the body, right? And so I knew that I wanted to not be put into like a really uh, confining box that way. And a licensure in acupuncture allows me to treat people for both physical and psychological conditions. And so long story short, that's how I ended up getting my degree in acupuncture. Um, and uh, that's what I do today. So I treat people for chronic pain. Uh, I also completed uh, somatic experiencing's three-year program, which is a trauma training program that works on, uh, it's like the, the body's experience of traumatic experience, right? It's not just a psychological thing. It's the way that the body uh, organizes and reorganizes itself, disorganizes itself in the face of really challenging, intense events or prolonged stress. And it's this idea of accessing the autonomic nervous system through this type of focus and attention and therapeutic process we'll talk about specifics later but it's this intersection of like physical rehab like chronic pain rehab and then that somatic experiencing uh post-traumatic stress anxiety approach and then using those in junction with each other to treat uh you know i hate this word but more holistically meaning just yes the whole system together sure I, but it's I, I think the disconnect is interesting i think when in, you know you have this great diagram on your website linking the the pain physical with the neurological and the stress anxiety and um the diagram is i think people think especially if you think emotional neurological i think people put like this cloud above the body visual of like well there's physical and then there's like emotional but like there's this like there's disconnect but everything is physiological Right, everything comes back to the body and there's this connection. So I love the diagram you have because it lays it out so intricately where it's so easy to, to understand. You can see exactly where the intersections lie. And I know you talk about, on your website, you talk about how understanding those intersections really helps you put together your, your initial plan, right? Your treatment plan of where you start. So one, the, the somatic experience is this where is those intersections are this is that part of the definition of this of this somatic experience that you talk about often yeah so so somatic experiencing is a therapeutic approach that was developed by this um uh man named peter levine and it's this uh it, it exists in this really interesting place 
in healthcare where, yes, it's primarily a psychotherapeutic approach. Most of the people who practice somatic experiencing as a model and are, uh, you know, certified somatic experiencing practitioners who have gone through the, you know, the three-year ordeal to get trained in it are psychotherapists, but there's also a wide lens of application because, you know, there are people like body workers or people like me who sort of straddle those lines um, between the physical and the psychological, because its application is about trying to make that connection you're talking about, to not have there be just a cloud above your shoulders and then your physical body below. Mm -hmm. But the idea that your thoughts, your experiences, the way that your system responds to stress has physical impact you know, of course, it's to degrees, you know, you, listeners right now, you can even just take a second. And I don't know, maybe think about that email that you got that you didn't want to get or think about the conversation that was tough recently. And just notice how there will be subtle changes in sensation in your body. That doesn't mean that you're dying right now, because you did that. But like, if we put a heart rate monitor on you, and just said, like, hey, how are things going with your spouse? And if there's something going on, your heart rate might go up a little bit and that's fine that's natural right. that's normal the idea is not to pathologize it it's actually to normalize it to be like this is how the body and the human system works there are no independent stressors psychological stressors have a physical impact physical stressors have a psychological impact and there are degrees to this so i you know we don't want to swing so far on the opposite side of the spectrum where it's like right. okay you have you know, like we'll call routine back pain that everybody gets every now and then. And all of a sudden it means that there's going to be this huge psychological impact. Like, no, it's it's very flexible and fluid, but we can't deny that the connection is there. And so to bring this back more to somatic experiencing in particular is that it is this um, therapeutic approach that's designed to help people connect these elements of their stress experience, the body sensations, um, the internal images that you might have, whether that's memories or thoughts about the future or even abstract things. Like when I ask people about their stress experience, when they're experiencing it, it's like, I don't know, I feel a tightness in my chest and it has like a, I don't know, when I think about it and focus on it, it's like there's a red quality. I don't know. You know, people say this is how the human system works. It just, it pulls on these different elements of how we uh, internalize experience. There's other things like you know, our behavior. I don't just mean like what we do, but like, oh, my jaw is tense or my hands, I notice, get a little tense. This is just the way the body is physiologically trying to manage the sympathetic charge that's now elevated in the system. And the more that we can consciously connect and understand the patterns of those experiences, the more entry points we have to redirect the way that that sentence is unconsciously finishing itself inside of you. And then it's like, oh, and then I notice I'm just like having a panic attack, or then I go and uh, I drink more than I want to, or I eat more than I want to, or whatever the, whatever the, the experience is that we're trying to avoid. It's like, well, there's a before the before. And then there's a before the before the before and the more that we can recognize oh these are the signs in my physiology that something's happening we can then begin to shape the experience differently to give the the body and the system uh, an experience of coming up with a different solution it's see this is why i do what i do it's just like changing yeah. movement patterns we put you in an environment where normally you want to grip your low back in order to stabilize on your left hip well, what if we gave you a way that your system could slow things down, break it down a little bit and realize, oh, I can let go of my low back and maybe pick up a little bit more tone in some of my lateral hip uh, stabilizers or something like that. And we, we give it the ability to organize a new response. We're doing the same thing in both areas. It's just with a different tool of application. So now it's a bit of a long, uh, you know, run around on all of that. But but these are the connections that that I'm trying to draw in my practice for people. Yeah, no, I love that. And I love the word, you mentioned the word fluid. And I, I like that visualization because we are we are no one number of any kind. We're not one heart rate. We're not one weight on the scale. We're not like, we are just this constantly reacting system to everything. And I have seen on many of your posts that you use the heart rate response as just a quantitative number to, to watch. And, you know, I think it's just fascinating. You had one post where, you know, someone's resting heart rate coming in you worked on a pain point, I believe it was a scar, you saw heart rate response increase, but then it actually dropped below the original resting number after. You know, I, it's, there's a story there, right? But I think it, at the very least, at the simplest, it talks to how what you have going on, regardless of what it is, 
is playing a part of your total health system at all times. Because if, if your resting heart rate is constantly a little higher than what it normally would be if you, let's say, had, not no one has no stress, no one has, you know, but if you had minimal stress, minimal pain, or whatever, you know, quote unquote, normal numbers are, that changes your immune system, that changes your health system. So this interconnected number and this fluid back and forth of everything we do every second of all day, I think is important for people to recognize I think people get so stuck on just being there, just existing under one one entity all the time. And that's just not how the human body works. Um, you have a quote where you talk about, you know, taking ownership of your relationship to health. Is part of taking that ownership just really just identifying these factors for people, just creating this awareness of, hey, look, your heart rate is different when certain things happen. It, would you say that's a big part of the initial part of your relationship when working with new patients? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The first step is just simply getting to know the patterns, whether they be patterns in uh, the way your body is organizing movements that may or may not be contributing to your pain and your tension and if your symptoms are on that level, or your patterns associated with your stress response whether that be everyday stress or whether you're dealing with an event or something like that, that um, was a little bit more uh, concentrated in terms of its impact on you. Mm-hmm. That the, the, first, the first thing we have to do is just get a handle on what the patterns are, you know? And the human system is designed to push things, to push more things out of awareness than bring things into conscious awareness. Conscious awareness takes a lot of neural energy and we just don't have the computing hardware in the brain to be aware of all of these things happening inside of us. And so that's uh, that's what's kept us alive. That's what keeps us like a living organism. Like, thank mm-hmm. you, nature, for that. The downside, though, is that we're always looking to automate things inside of our system. And that includes behavior. And that includes these other elements that sometimes things that have high collateral cost to the rest of the system get automated and become automatic responses. Yeah. So it's like the way that I deal with work stress gets me through the work stress and to the survival evolutionary part of my brain that runs this automation. It says, well, it's working. We're not dead. Keep going. But it's hard on my relationships with my family and my other loved ones. Uh, Maybe it's hard on my health. I get sick a lot or I just feel bad all the time. I've got chronic fatigue because the the pattern is expensive. The pattern works in one very narrow way, but then all of a sudden we're getting beat up in these other zones. It's we're, we're robbing one system to really over deliver in one. And so then you come to see me and we go like, Hey, what are, what do we need to do here? Well, I, I'd like to bring this down and I'd like to bring this up. Okay. What are the whole things clustering around what's getting you into the undesirable state? on a routine basis. And that that process is so crucial. What I tell people all the time in the office is that one of the most important steps in the therapeutic process is the experience of surprise. Meaning something you didn't know you knew came into view and now you consciously know it, right? A new piece of information is now important and relevant to you that now because it's come up to this higher level of awareness, everything about your system now can start to organize around it differently. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to automatically organize in a way that uh, is super desirable or better, because I know many people who say, I understand a lot about my anxiety or I understand a lot about my pain, but yet I still have my symptoms all the time. So it's not enough to understand, but to 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 directly answer the question, that that awareness of understanding the pattern is so important because it means new and relevant information that was currently that was previously being pushed out is now currently brought in and now we can do something about it but if it stays out sort of in that you know fog of life at the speed of real time uh it's just really hard to really hard to find those points to leverage change well that's and i i have a question here i hope i ask it the right way that makes sense that the bringing the light, the mentality, I think I, I see it a lot where, and maybe a, maybe a client comes and they went to see a PT for a reason, and maybe it was a, at a dull ache, so we said, okay, well, go get it checked out. And they come back and, you know, the, the PT told them, well, we noticed this, this, and this. And it was stuff that they never focused on before, but also now they can't not focus on it. Like all of a sudden the pain has become 
more intense and you wonder sometimes, did it become more intense because you were made aware of something or was it really that intense? People tend to just focus in more on something once they become aware of it. But if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, to your point, understanding can't be the whole solution because the approach immediately after the understanding has to be right. If someone identifies a pain point or they are become aware of a misalignment and all of a sudden, because they're hyper-focused focused on it, they're like, oh man, now I realize I actually don't feel great because of this. Someone like you has to be there to say, okay, but let's let's take this awareness now and right away take next steps. Here's what we do to correct that. Here's how we use that symptom you're experiencing to gain information, but now go the right way. So I guess can sometimes awareness lead to a hyper-focused response by a patient or a client that by itself can actually maybe increase stress and is increase anxiety if it's not taken care of directly, if there isn't a plan in place after. Does that make sense the way I asked it? I mean, absolutely it does, and it 100% is true. And I see those people all the time in the office where, you know, uh, being who I am in healthcare, I'm rarely the first person somebody goes to see because they don't you know, know what I do. And it's not like this isn't like a reflexive choice for most people. So I've, uh, I'm usually the, the, in a long list of people, I am not in the top three of the first people they've seen. <laughs> so they have all these ideas about what other people in uh, positions of medical authority have told them. And, and, uh, and like you said, it's awareness is great until it's not, you know, mm-hmm. um, understanding is great until it's not and there's there's a goldilocks zone of just enough and not too much and that's going to be different for every person and that's really the art of healthcare being a good clinician is being able to to get a read on somebody and understand a little bit more about uh how they present in the world and how they how they work and to know mm, maybe i'll leave a little bit of this in the bag you know this part of the pattern this part like maybe maybe we don't need this detailed amount of awareness of it because it's probably going to do more harm than good in the picture and also what i tell people all the time is um the things that we discover or the things that we uh, test and retest from a movement standpoint, I really work hard in the clinic to, um, like you said earlier, it's not about one data point. No one test or no one experience is the defining feature. We're just getting like an imperfect rough picture of what's going on that's fluid, that's going to change over time. And I work really hard to like not assign tons and tons and tons of meaning to something, but to just use it. it, it, This is, again, it it has to be salient. It has to be meaningful and compelling in order to create change. So we're not just trying to say, hey, this is all just random data. Let's just see what happens. It's like, that's too loose. That's too open-ended. Nobody's going to trust you. It's just, that's not it. That's not it. But we're also not like, hey, uh, you don't have dorsiflexion on that left side, so you're probably going to be screwed forever. It's like, like, no, (laughs) these are two ends of the (laughs) spectrum that are really, really, really Uh, that very rarely lead to good clinical outcomes with people. And so we want to, man, this is what makes it hard, right? This is why, this is why most people collapse into one side of the spectrum or the other, because it's just easier. It's easier to just say, oh, I understand everything about biomechanics and this is how you should move. And uh, you don't do that. So that's why you're in pain, the end. Or it's easy to say, hey, nothing matters. Just back squat, just get stronger. The only thing that matters is how strong you are. Like life gets a whole lot simpler in that case. And you resolve a lot of the dissonance inside of yourself as the clinician and just makes things easier. Um, and I can understand because I feel that pull in myself all the time to say, oh, why don't we just do whatever? But I think really where the where the where the magic is, where the where real life happens, you know, to exist in a reality that is touchable and real not just your theory, not just your opinions about stuff, but again, it's right. called somatic experiencing for a reason. It's experiential in nature. Uh, you have to learn to kind of bob and weave with what somebody needs and how much is enough and how much is too much. And and listen, I get it wrong all the time too. You know, it, it's something that is a moving target and that's what makes being a clinician hard, but it's also what makes it worthwhile. Yeah, and staying on this kind of theme right now of beliefs before we get into more of the technical aspects of what you do. You know, we talked about bringing up awareness and, you know, your beliefs and, you know, your approach and the coaches, you know, my approach. You're also, battling is probably a little dramatic, but there's the challenge too of the predisposed thoughts 
of the patient coming in the door too, right? Especially if, like you said, if you're the third person they've seen, they've already, between the other professionals they've spoken to, their own Google searches, their own self-diagnosis, people come in and they do it to you, they do it to trainers, you know, they this, this predisposed knowledge of, I know, I think I know me, I think I know what works for me, and I'm also trying to hire a professional to tell me what to do, but there's this mix, right? So when you're coming in, when someone finally does third stop, gets a mat, you know, is, is that a challenge point sometimes really saying, hey, listen, I need you to be open-minded to what might be a new approach for you and something you probably haven't considered yet? Mm. Yes, for sure. And I think that because of where I typically uh, live in the sequence of healthcare events for people, there's a few different ways that that goes. There's the type of person you described that is like, well, my my previous PT said this and what we were working on was that and my glutes are weak and my blah, 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 you know, and all all the stuff that they get told that they either held onto or they don't. And then there are people who hold onto it and bring it to you next. And then there are people who are just like, none of you know anything. You know, this person says this, this person says that, um, I'm not feeling any better, uh, doctors suck, you know, and that's that. And so what do you got? You know, so there's a few different ways that this goes. And I think to speak most generally about it is that, um, I do ask people to be open-minded in the sense that if I am the third, fourth, seventh, eighth person that they've seen to just say like, well, we're going to just do some stuff that is maybe completely off the wall from what you've done. Cause you, cause you're on number seven. Now I'm number seven. So clearly middle of the road ain't working for you. Right. You wouldn't be if, if, if step four was good, you wouldn't be with me at step seven. So right. something in you is like already, I need something else. And this isn't me trying to override and say, you don't know anything. You're here to just do what I tell you. And we're just going to do some really weird crap and just, just suck it up. But it's like, no, no, no. Let's look at speaking of the before the before you're already here. Something inside you was like, I can tell that there's something else that I'm not getting. And, um, how can I best speak to that part of you that brought you here today? to on this weird guy who does this weird stuff that you right. know most people don't really know that much about you could have just gone in network pt and that would have been it but it wasn't right. and um and the good you could have given up you could have just been like oh it didn't work there's no solution for me i'm just done and yeah. but it's like no 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 <clears throat> that, there's something else it's like no something in you already knows that there's that that, that something else is out there and maybe yes. that's this and let's let's go for it you know and, but we want to bring in what you've experienced before sure all of that is valuable information all of that is really great let's use that and then take a next step instead of just like i'm not going to go backwards and try to refine the step that the in-network pt just did Right. Because like, like, that's just not w- w- how I can best like take the baton and take you forward. You know what I mean? We're going to make different types of adjustments. Right. And, and, you know, I had to laugh a little bit because I hear, well, I hear two things you said all the time on the training side. And I am not a rehab expert. I won't pretend to be, you know, I've, I've self-educated enough where I try to be an understander of pain so I can help work around it and find pain-free movements for you because that's my job. But I hear all the time people come in and say, I've got this shoulder thing. It's just is what it is. It's going to be there forever. And I don't fight people day one, but sometimes I want to be like, well, maybe we can try a different, you know, I have other referrals. Why can we, we can bring someone else in that maybe could still help on that. It probably isn't just what it is. There there probably is something you just haven't found the right solution yet. Um, And then certainly I've, I've heard the people too, who come in and say, I hate all of this. I've never found results in this exercise doesn't work. Like there is no good nutrition for me. Like, and pretty much it's, it's like they walk in as a challenge. Like I'm going to, I'm going to give you a shot here, but you're going to fail. And you're like, and that's, it's a tough, that's a tough wall to break through sometimes. And it really takes, it takes the right approach by you, right. To gain trust by someone early on that didn't have, that's already lost trust in a system and to find some early wins, right? You got to find some early wins in those people that keep them with you long enough to where you actually have the time to eventually see real progress. So I guess that'll lead me into more your official process. When someone comes to you, you know, what, 
where are you starting? And I realize this is a loaded question because every person is so different. But if you're, if I'm looking at your your diagram on your website, and we have this three three system approach that's integrated together, where are you looking to start to get some early wins to gain early trust and see early progress in a client? You know, what's the low hanging fruit that maybe you can start diving into before you start getting into the longer terms of things? Mm -hmm. The 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 early wins. I, yeah, I really want to underline too are unbelievably important to to a training relationship, to a therapeutic relationship. Um, something has to happen. Something has to happen. You know, right. I, I I'm I was you know I've spent a lot of time in my career around coaches and young coaches, and have been in different types of mentoring roles, or just you know just a friend that is maybe a handful of years you know further down the line and, and talking with people in a certain part of the process. And the number of coaches and and younger therapists that I've spoken to over time, I've always been surprised by uh, sometimes they feel as though like, I don't know why this person didn't give me a shot. Like after three or four, they kind of left and that was it. And I was like, have have like, have you hung in with a therapist for more than three or four sessions if nothing happened? Like even a little bit of something happened. Like, did right. you give them that? And they all say no. They're all like, no, I didn't do. And it's like, so so put yourself in that person's position. If nothing happens in three or four, you're not going to go back because mm -hmm. you, why, you have no reason, you have no experiential reason to trust this person anymore. They could tell you a ton of theory that you go, wow, that's really true. I really feel how that's true. I really feel how that's true. And then nothing experiential happens. That's maybe a, that's not a great clinician or that's not a great coach. That's a right. great uh, teacher or that's a great, and those people are important too, but, but you're there for an experience. You're there for something to happen. Right. And so I'm going off on this a little bit um, in a general sense, just to underline yeah. how important it is that something needs to happen within the first couple in order to engender that sense of trust and get people to hang in. And it is not their short sightedness that powers that it's human nature yeah i bet if you looked carefully enough if you went to a restaurant three times and had crappy food you would not go back like you're doing it all the time so yep. give people that grace that it's like no i have to deliver something in this short period of time now can yes. you help people see those things more clearly that maybe they're not trained to notice or it's like hey you couldn't touch your toes now you can or hey like little things sure you need to highlight because people are not going to notice that that's meaningful or not or you know, sure there, there's there's definitely a way that you help that along i'm not saying like hey within three appointments somebody's got to lose 15 pounds because that's nuts but right. you know this is what we're talking about these minor smaller more perceptible but measurable wins yeah anyway with that with that sort of <laughs> dissertation out of the way what do i do with people well People have different levels of access points to me. Some people come to see me because their trainer referred me because they've got back pain. And we're going to run you through a comprehensive movement assessment. You know, we're going to look at things from more of a neurobiomechanical standpoint and see, okay, what seems to be from a physical perspective, um, the reason that your back is not super happy with uh, your state of affairs. And then, you know, we can do treatment based stuff, whether that is, uh, you know, dry needling and or manual therapy. Um, but we're going to fin finish that up with rehab exercise, we're going to figure out how to get you moving differently. If they are coming from a trainer, we'll, you know, coordinate and come up with a plan for the way that they can uh, begin to introduce these new movements that have not been integrated into their system for a while. And that that's sort of like a, a classic type of appointment that I will do with somebody. Okay. Some people get referred to me just for somatic experiencing. They say, hey, um, you know, my friend, you saw my friend after their car accident and it really went well and I've had this thing happen and, and blah, 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 blah. And they come and see me for that. And we're not taking them all the way through a comprehensive movement assessment right out the gate. We might come to that later on if we're finding like, hey, See, this is where things get a little interesting and why I do what I do is like, hey, maybe part of how you're locked in your stress response. Okay, here, a little technical stuff. When we talk about traumatic responses, we talk about fight, flight, freeze, and then fawn is another one. But for our purposes right now, if we're talking about fight, flight, and freeze, mm -hmm. when somebody has an accident or something like that, typically what causes an ongoing traumatic response is that one of those physiological states is persisting inside of somebody outside of the event because a feature of traumatic experience is that things happen too quickly too fast to be processed and a lower part an unconscious part of the of the midbrain brainstem limbic system is still like wait did we close that tab am i still like in immediate threat even though your psychological self knows 
you're out of the car and it's fine. People have had experiences like this all the time where it's like there, there's this rattling sensation that's maybe still left over and that can show up in a lot of different ways. And so why I'm talking about this is that sometimes somebody, let's say they're, they're stuck in this sympathetic tone, they're stuck in this like fight response where a minor infraction comes in and they blow up at it or they're just really, really quick on the trigger. It's like maybe your back pain that extensor tone that's keeping you in all of this sympathetic posture, this extension posture that's limiting the expansion of your rib cage, that's limiting your ability to just tone down is actually coming from a branch of your nervous system that's like stuck in this response of something that's happened. Um, and so do we change that from a somatic experiencing perspective of working through the event? Or do we get you into like a 90-90 position with your feet on the wall, get you to breathe and you experience how you can let go of extensor tone in your back and suddenly that breaks up the psycho-emotional physiological log jam and now we go back to what we're doing. So we might end up in one bucket or the other, but usually when people come to see me, we're starting with one of these other contact points sure. and then pulling on the other tools as we need based on the shape of their problem. Hey, listen, somebody comes in, they've got back pain. We give them some more hip IR on one side and then they're good. And it's like, hey, see you later. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to convince everybody that, that we need to pull every lever on your system at the same time that, you know, it's all about how, how your emotions interact with your back pain, um, unless it does. And then we do, you know, it's, it's flexible. And so it's, it's the person's system has to reveal itself to me over time. We're not trying to say, I'm not the fix your back pain with the power of thinking guy. Like, I, like I'm not, you know, right. I don't think that that's, that's just as, that's just as one-sided as your back pain can't possibly be related to your emotions. Yeah, they're no, both wrong. Like, right. They're both wrong and they're both unbelievably short-sighted. And so the goal is to just not, again, not collapse onto one extreme end of the spectrum or the other, but to be able to move in between them as the client needs. Well, and this goes back to why you can't come in with a fully predisposed tactic in mind, right? You you can't have one process. like And even like, you know, so, you know, we do have an assessment process we use here at the gym, but I also try to teach my trainers to have some flexibility in it, where if you learn something in the initial dialogue that makes sense to test something not in our, our general assessment, well, if it makes sense, go do it. Do it. Let's stay logical here and let's not be so textbook. Let's be textbook where we need to be textbook, but let's understand the body enough to say, you know what? I just kind of want to see something today. I just, you made me think of something. I want to see you do this drill specifically because I think it's going to make sense for something that you brought up to me. And I think that flexibility has to exist, right? So, and there's, there's a lot of ways up the mountaintop, you know, to be cliche, right? And there's, so, I mean, it's, I think it's interesting what can start the cascade of results for what you do, you know, how you can, you can kind of backdoor through this emotional response, or you can use the physical response to go the other direction to adjust breathing that then can improve an emotional response. So I, I just, I love the back and forth. I love the play on it. I'm sure a lot comes from the physical assessment. Can I ask what type of questions are you asking? So the, the non-physical assessment, the dialogue part, what types of questions are you asking someone on a first day? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, day one, if somebody's coming to me, um, particularly for the uh, the the non, I'm going to call it the non movement related piece of what I do. They're not right. coming for integrative movement rehab. They're coming for sure. more of the uh, psychophysiological stuff of what I do. Um, we we start out we start out with history because especially if we're going to do somatic experiencing um, as a treatment model for somebody um, even if it's not the specific event or uh, set of experiences that were that this person is coming in for i need to know if that person's been in a car accident um, if that person has been sexually assaulted I need to know if those things have happened because that nervous system, when we come in contact with some of the techniques in somatic experiencing um, is different than somebody who has not had those experiences. So we do a very detailed 
history, not in terms of like all the content. And it's not like, oh, you got to tell me all the terrible things that have happened to you in your life story. Um, we start sure. very, very, very high level. And I just say, like, I, I tell them what I just told you, like, in order for me to really manage our, our, you know, therapeutic interaction and to make sure that we don't overwhelm your system or, you know, have a therapeutic experience that turns into a re-traumatizing experience. I just kind of need to know, have you done that? Have you had surgery? Surgery sometimes for yeah. people is routine and your body shakes it off for the most people. That's fine. I've worked with a ton of people who are like, you know what? I woke up from surgery and, and, and I was just kind of never really the same. Like something changed because their body experienced something that uh, got locked in a bit of a response. And so knowing that helps because we're trying to avoid like what I call um, trap doors or something where we're going along in the appointment and then all of a sudden something that I'm not aware of or if I didn't take that history, you know, I say, well, yeah, and what do you what do you really notice in the pit of your stomach there when that comes up? And then that just pulls us right into the middle of like a flashback scenario or like a really deep traumatic response because we just cut a whole lot of that energy loose knowing oh yeah you 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 know you were in a life-threatening you, you had a near-death experience and even if it was 20 years ago and even if you never think about it again i just need to know because sometimes when we peel back some of these layers and go into the way that the body responds to stress it's very generalized the stress hardware is some of our most primitive hardware it's it, it's not governed by our our cognitive psyche, although it has interaction with it. And so things that just feel generally similar sensations somewhere in the body or a sense of an emotion with a sensation, even if it's way over here, but if it feels in, an, in enough, and enough boxes have been checked that it feels similar to this other response, we can sometimes pull in a whole lot of a whole lot of uh, energy that maybe the system would be overwhelmed by. So this is a long story to say, we really go carefully through somebody's story. And often sure. what happens is, as we're doing that, um, there'll be physiological shifts in states, people will talk about something, and I'll notice something in their behavior, the jaw, the this or their tone of and I'm just and then we'll pause with that and say, yeah, and just what do you even feel happening in the body when you start to just tell me about that thing with whatever? And then we do a little bit of work on that and then a little bit of work. So, so we're, we're starting really wide and then we're getting elements from the history that seem to be important and the ones <clears throat> that still have life now. And what I mean by have life now is, again, when you talk to me about it and we notice the physiology change or the emotions change or some combination of the two, then we know that it's it's there's something that's touchable and real there that that's fine and then that's a little access point and so it's it, that's how we're finding our way in when we're doing when we're not doing you know uh biomechanical rehab I, I always find it interesting what people share first versus what may be the most important factor because those are not always the same thing yeah you know people will come in and you know you want to open the door for them to share so you know like you on a smaller level make people feel comfortable, let them know that more information is better, share what you're comfortable with. And, and people will come in first with, well, I had you know injury history. I had this, this, or this. But then on day seven, all of a sudden, you know, we'll do an exercise. I'm like, oh, I felt, I felt a pinch there. And you'll ask about it and they'll say, oh, well, I had this surgery there. And that never came up. We've been working together twice a week for three and a half weeks. And you've never brought this up before. And like, well, I just, it wasn't relevant, but it was. So it's it's interesting to me too the power of what people like back to our predispositions topic that we we've already kind of gone through a little bit but it's still always fascinating what people come in wanting to talk about because people prepare for these sessions right when someone's going to you a lot of times they're coming in like man I I'm going to be sharing X Y and Z it's like they go to a therapist like you know I've worked with therapists you know I I've certainly gone in being like okay well here's here's probably what I'm going to be talking about in this session. And that's just kind of what I jump to. And then it's amazing what gets weeded out later. Hmm. So I, it's just more of a general fascination, I think, with with the human brain and what they what they believe is the most relevant thing, whether or not that's, that's true. Yeah, and I think uh, that brings me uh, back to the thought of, of the importance of surprise in the therapeutic process, where we do come in and we have kind of organized our thoughts and our perspectives on like, ah, it really seems like this seems to be relevant and part of what's going on for me. And this is my pattern. And uh, these are the things that have impacted me. But it's like, if that were really the whole story, a lot of people that, you know, we work with, it's like, you probably figured it out by now. 
right? Like right. you probably would have gotten there. Um, and so there's probably some element in there that uh, you haven't thought about for a while or hasn't come in contact because it's been so automated or so way back there. And that's really a lot of what we do with somatic experiencing is like we slow experiences down and stretch them out and really try to notice all the different elements. And my words start to fail me whenever I try to describe this part because it's like something just happens. Like when we start to really bring our conscious attention to like our body sensation, like I mentioned, internal images, uh, behavior, meaning like movement, muscle tension, posture, things like that. Um, the, the, when all of those get brought to the table consciously at the same time and start talking to each other, informing each other, there's there's often something that just happens and somebody goes like, oh, man, I haven't thought about this for a while, but really what's happening is blank. And I'm just suddenly having a memory of like this thing because then all of a sudden like neurons that were not connected to each other suddenly did and then push this information up to the surface. And it's like, oh, there's that missing piece of what I'm experiencing right now that when I thought about it and journaled about it and talked to myself about it and did all the cognitive processes that I could about it, I wasn't able to get to. But then when I brought that experience down into the physical level while keeping those cognitive skills online, something else revealed itself to me. And, and it was interesting and surprising. And it was like, oh, that's what I was missing. And so we need to have the structure of the preconceived ideas coming in. So you got you to start somewhere. And then it's really, really, really powerful and special when then it's like, oh, it's actually not this part that I was thinking. And even though that thing made a lot of sense, it's just like, oh, no, it's not that. It's actually over here and it's this thing. And people know it because they just feel it in their system. Like, like it's like holding an apple in your hand. You're just like, oh, I just, I'm holding an apple in my hand. It's experiential. I just know it to be true. It's not right. like, hey, consider this other idea. It's like, no, I just like felt something happen and change inside of me. And that's the difference between like a body-based approach to therapy versus cognitive therapy. Sure. Uh, if this brings us kind of full circle too with the importance of finding small wins early because this is this is the type of stuff you lose the opportunity to gain later the the stuff that comes out after three weeks six weeks 12 weeks with somebody again if you didn't establish trust and if you didn't find a way to quantify and find and identify wins early on you really miss these wow moments and by you missing i mean both 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 the doctor the trainer or the patient and client, everyone misses this opportunity to really see these wow moments. I, I think, and I know, I know trainers for a fact do it. Trainers are such in a hurry to hit the home run with things. They're, they're such in a hurry to, one, let's be honest, and, and we saw this a lot with the Lee Burdens and the Gray Cooks, because you and I came in at a time where we were learning directly from these guys, which was really cool, but it sent a lot of trainers into this, the whole corrective, I'm using air quotes, for, for my non-video uh, people. You know, this whole corrective nature where everyone all of a sudden wanted to cure things. We wanted to identify, because if we don't identify, I can't fix. So we took the FMS and we wanted to find, like I have, you have to have something wrong so I can fix it. And then we identified and then people hyper-focused on it. And then we, we again, we wanted to hit this home run there, but we really weren't in a place to. And then those home runs didn't happen. And then, clientele started leaving or switching trainers or, you know, it just, it became this flux where we stopped looking for the easy wins. We stopped looking for the lower hanging fruit of just get people moving a little bit. They haven't worked out for years. Just get them to come to two workouts straight, two weeks in a row. That alone is going to blow their mind that you just got them to do four workouts in two weeks. Like these are easy, easy wins that we have to identify. But I think, again, people are just so in a hurry to hit the home run all the time. And if you rush results, it just doesn't work, right? It just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Oh, Mike. Yes. I mean, <laughs> the, oh, there's a thing. Pandora's I'm, box. I'm, I, I, yeah, yeah, I'm like self-editing in real time right now to be like, okay, well, like what angle of this do I want to go down? Because we could do a whole other hour on on just this this piece because yes. you're totally right. You know, it came up during this time when uh yeah the fms really blew up and then and then all these other subsequent things that have come out where there's there's big business in um i'll be blunt um there's big business in telling trainers like hey um pt school and is stupid you're gonna learn a whole bunch of outdated crap 
I'm going to like basically cut you to the front of the line and you're going to be better than all of the like in-network PTs around you. And what's tricky is that they're, they're in a certain sense, they're right because there, there are a lot of gaps in rehab education and standard PT, Cairo, like all the standard, everybody hates their medical education. Nobody comes out <laughs> of any type of clinical school and it was like, wow, that was great. But there's these other things that you get from it. I don't want to get derailed on this, but my point right. is, is that it definitely was a huge trend in, you know, like 20, you know, the 2009 through, yes. well, I mean, maybe people say it's still currently really going on, but it was super hardcore in that period of time when we came up where it's like, yeah, we're going to correct everything and we're going to, you know, be that type of trainer. And there's positives and negatives to it to bring and to not, to not go too far into that topic. I think what's more interesting is talking about this idea of the client relationship. Like how does, how, if you're going to be that person, how does that change your client relationship? How does that change what your wins are? How does that change what the home run is? Like that you're playing a different game now and uh, sometimes it goes well. Like you said, sometimes you help somebody with their whatever range of motion and their relentless neck pain goes away and now they trust you forever and you look like the magician and you feel good and makes you, again, I'll speak from personal experience and to be blunt and what I've seen yeah. in the industry, there's a lot of trainers that are just looking to feel special because personal training as a job is not a highly revered job. Despite the fact that people get highly specialized, they spend a ton of money on education. You can be a very high level professional, but society doesn't see you that way. And so right. we're always feeling the in a certain level of consciousness, whether it's right at the front or way in the back, there's always a motivation to be like, no, I'm not just a personal trainer. I'm more, I'm, 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 there's something about me that's special and I fixed your neck pain. You know what I mean? Yes. And it comes from a good place and an understandable place, but it does also come from an egoic place that that is good until it's not right. Like that can turn around on you. And we all know people in the industry for whom it's like, ah, uh, you, you like it turned around and now it's about everything is now about feeding you experiences that satisfy that need for specialness um, rather than the needs of your client. And um, man, that's that's like a that's probably like my least favorite archetype in fitness. I will take Julie, Jillian Michaels mm -hmm. 10 times out of 10 over that trainer. Who's like, yeah. I'm going to be the special one. And all of you people are just like fodder for that experience. And like, I have some wins, I have some losses, but it's about me being this type of person in the industry. It's like, no, man, that's just, that's not it. It's not it. Yeah. No. And, it, and it's well said. And again, I'm, I, I've been, I've been a trainer for a long time. I'm, if I, if I expand my education, it's going to all still be within fitness. I am where I'm going to be. And, but you're right, how we are looked at from a society standpoint, you know, I, I think you have the trainers who see that as a challenge and just become the best trainers they can do your job really well. And you will have huge impacts on, <laughs> on prevention of disease, yes. on prevention of injury. Live, but uh, we need to live in the prevention side and we have to stop, you know, once things are past prevention, we, we've got to swallow the pride a little bit and say, listen, I don't mind saying someone might have discomfort because I believe that I can tell the difference a little bit versus, you know what, let's try some stretch out, try a few things, see if what you just told me you're feeling goes away with a no harm approach. If it doesn't, we're going to go to the next person and we're going to bring in someone as a member of the team, not as a separate entity. And I think that's the difference too. Like be willing to work with the team. And I, and I still, and again, we won't, like you said, we won't spend the next hour on this, but I just, I've never understood the stubbornness of needing to be the one person answer for everything. I just, mm -hmm. I just don't understand it. But having said that, let's, if we switch the perspective a little bit now to, if, if we speak a little more to the patient, what tools are you giving people to help them identify the small wins? So what, you know, and I'm going to make a, a trainer example, and then you please create an example you can for the patients you work with someone comes to me and their only goal they stay is I, I want to lose 50 pounds. I don't care about anything else. I don't care if I can touch my toes. I don't care if I can hinge. I don't care about my, my low back tightness. You know, they come in with this one thing. I need to do my job to set up in the initial assessment, things that are important and find a way to point them out, but also relate it back to their goal. Right. I'd say, listen, your movement pattern getting better is eventually going to allow us 
to work at a different intensity level, which will then feed into your weight loss along with the nutritional changes we're going to make. So, you know, and then if I can make those connections for them, I can identify things as a win in week one, even if the scale isn't already down five pounds, like they're hoping to lose immediately, because that's probably not going to happen. So for me, you know, for the training side, as you know, very well, those are like, those are the small wins I can find that help them see it. What are the tools you're giving to your patients to find small wins in a short term, even though they've come to you with long-term hopes? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'll, I'll answer this in, in really two ways. Cause there are two major ways that we do this. Um, you know, when we're talking, when we're dealing with, let's say chronic pain and we're using this movement-based approach as the primary starting point, um, I, for me in day one, I mean, it's table tests, right? Like we do range of motion measurements, uh, on the table in different positions. And, you know, we're, we're assessing somebody. And then when we give them something to do in that first appointment, um, those tests should be better, like right then, you know, and right. I tell people all the time, they're not going to stay this way, but it guides the process where I feel great about saying, Hey, Mrs. Jones, just go do this a million times over the next two weeks. And then let's, let's meet again, because we just see how you couldn't move your arm this way, or your hip didn't do that. And then we did this series of events and uh, now it does. And so people, again, it's experiential. It's not just like, awesome. well, you have bad hip extension, quote unquote, uh, that must mean your glutes are weak. Here are single leg bridges. Uh, just go do them for six weeks. You know, like, like we don't like right. I, you have no idea how that is landing in somebody's system or not. And right. so so there's always the test and retest model that um, that I use in the clinic to help people see like, yes, my my body, my system is changing in real time. And I can continue. I can do these things to continue to cultivate these changes over time and make them uh, more robust. So okay. that, that's pretty easy to do over time. Um, and it's measurable and easy to repeat. And the other branch of what I do, it's a little harder. The, the, the draw distance is a little uh, longer with that because a crucial element to doing uh, trauma therapy is to not do too much too fast. You, you get into way more trouble doing too much too fast than too little too slow in that type of work. The way I tell people, the analogy I use with a lot of people is it's, um, it's like you have a shaken up carbonated drink that's in a bottle and we have to get the pressure out of the bottle. So you have to turn the lid and enough air has to come out to change. But if you open that too fast, the water spills everywhere and, and it's just, it's a mess. And so we're really trying to find like the working edge of we can, we can get that. And, and then pressure's moving. They will feel things happening. You know, we, we access emotional and physiological activation in these sessions with the idea is to activate and then come back and to teach the system how to fluctuate and have flow again between it's not just getting locked in a reaction and then shutting down and then locked in a reaction for a while and then crashing and shutting down, but to have more fluidity. And so what I'll ask people to do is just simply notice that fluidity more over time and give them tools of what to do. You know, this will be highly specific based on the person, but if we notice, hey, you know, we, we, when we're working on this event or we're working on this part of your stress response, this is part of the pattern of how the stress shows up in your body. And then this was also the way in which we were able to meet that response and then attenuate it a bit, bring it down a little bit and come back. So next time you notice that thing happening, clock that it's happening and maybe just feel the sense of your weight in your heels. If that was the thing that helped them, like whatever it is that helped kind of like meet sure. and deal with and tolerate those feelings associated with the stress response, they can start to feel, okay, I have like some skills around what I can do. And yeah. And people will tell me all the time. Yeah. I had this thing happen. My boss talked to me and I went and I did this thing, whatever it is that we found in the appointment. And right. instead of it derailing my whole weekend, I was able to spend time with my kids. I wasn't distracted. You know, I wrote the response in the email and then I just kind of moved on and I just felt to keep going with it. Yeah. I just could feel that contact with my heels and how that changed my breathing. I just wrote the email and that was it, you know, and so notice little things like that, you know what I mean? And then sure, there are bigger, bigger, bigger elements where we're trying to chip away at that slowly over time, because, um, it's not one of these things, like you said, there's no home run. That you mentioned about the dangers of trying to hit a home run in the fitness. And, and now I'm talking about in the rehab, when we're talking about in the trauma therapy world, there is no home run. You right. are, not, it is the opposite of trying to swing for the fences. Like that is the biggest rookie thing in the world. When we see all these, not to get derailed again, but all of these like unlicensed, you know, health coaches running around saying that they do trauma therapy, saying that they do some sort of somatic work. And it's like 
this huge catharsis model and whatever. It's just like, it's absolutely the opposite of what we know about how neurophysiological states work. And so it, the rules of that are different because the physiology of that's different. Sure. Well, I like the example you gave too. Like extend you're making connections to help people understand. A postural cue that you gave had a had a positive breathing response. Breathing responses lead to, you know, I mean, or not lead to, but but are a part of our our stress response. Like I, I just, the connection you made there was so, so I mean, obviously intelligent, but so simple to understand too. So I mean, that was a great response. How about you know you you talk about heart rate so much in your in your online presence between your website and your social media. How about heart rate as a number? Is that something you monitor with people when they're out? Do you do teach them to monitor that outside of workouts? Is that a tool you use pretty often? I don't actually um, okay. in, in that capacity. Okay. I know, you know, there's a lot of people who do heart math stuff and, you know, really, really use that as a treatment tool and then a monitoring tool. And um, I think that there's, there's a lot of really compelling things there. Um, for me, I, what I'll use heart rate, um, Maybe I'll now that we're talking about it, I'll use it in that way to demonstrate short-term wins, like you said. You know, okay. um, I, I will also I treat people who have pots, who have the you know they they stand up and their autonomic nervous system over delivers a cardiac response and their heart rate spikes for like four minutes to you know one forty just from going from supine to standing. You right. have a dysregulation in your autonomic nervous system. So yeah, now our measurement is what happens to your heart rate that way. And I've, I've experimented over time with having people on heart rate, let's say during somatic experiencing sessions and noticing it. But at a certain point, I found it kind of gets distracting and it can sometimes break the therapeutic yeah. relationship in the moment um, for that type of work. Uh, for other types of things like, hey, if we're doing, let's say, I don't know, like neurovisual training or balance or something like that. And we notice like, Hey, when we stress your system in this posture with this head orientation and this eye movement, um, your heart rate used to climb to whatever, when you were doing that activity, now it's half, that's probably a little bit easier to fold into. But as you can hear, as I talk about it, it kind of gets a little clunky and it kind of, doesn't kind of that, that unless it's like right in the center of the crosshairs, yeah. um, I haven't used it for people as intentionally, unless it reveals itself as like, Oh yeah, this could really be the way that somebody uh, is like a goalpost for them or something that they organize themselves around. Yeah. I, and you know, one of the reasons I ask is, well, one, because I've heard you talk about it in posts, like in the, in the ways that you just said, but also, you know, today, heart rate variability, the aura rings, you know, uh, my Garmin watch that I have on me right now, they're whoop, you know, there's so many tools out there where heart rate is such a crucial number in these equations. And I do think there's a lot of validity to using it. I don't know if everyone uses it correctly, <laughs> but you know, I do think there's a lot of ways to use it. So I was just curious in this world of data and this world where everyone has a tool outside of their sessions with you to monitor these things, if there was a way that you were incorporating it because they're using it anyway. Um, so that's more where the question came from, I guess. Yeah. And, and those moments have happened too, uh, and more by accident. For example, speaking of small wins with somebody, um, it's actually great that we stumbled on this because I should have said this earlier. Um, I was working with a guy once on, uh, we we're doing, we we're doing more of the somatic experiencing side of things. His PT recommended that he come see me and, um, he had his aura ring on, which he has had for three and a half years at this point or something. So he has a lot of data and he knows what's normal for him. Right. And it clicked into, you know, uh, rest mode or it detected when he was laying on the table and we were doing somatic experiencing, it detected that he had a state shift and his heart rate variability was like two standard deviations higher than he like ever sees when he sleeps or anything like that. And that made him go like, whoa, something's happening to me here. Like he had a subjectively, like we had a good experience and there was something happened from a qualitative standpoint. But when he went home and flipped open the app and it was like, Hey, uh, your heart rate variability from an aura standpoint uh, never gets above like 4550 and it just right. clocked 80. He was like, whoa, what, like what? You know, and that really caused him to, to hang in for a long period of time because he's like something measurable and physiological happened here. Uh, see, that's interesting. And I, and again, in different ways, I've, yeah, you can't, sometimes you can't fight what people already, you know, there's ways to use what people are already using even if they're not using it correctly, I think there's there's advantages sometimes to saying, hey, you know what, if you're going to use this anyway, let's use it to our advantage. And let's let's kind of just spin maybe the way you're using it and let's use it a different way. Um, so, you know, I, I've looked at resting heart rate more often with clients. We've looked at response during workouts differently. Um, 
it's, so it's just it's just interesting this world of data where as much as sometimes too much information is too much information you know if we can really fine tune the context around it you know it's it's just interesting the way we can use things for sure yeah Matt, man, this is this has been awesome. I think we have a million things we could do for hours more, but uh, we'll, <laughs> yeah. but so we'll we'll look for those opportunities. But for now, how do people find you? How do people find me? Um, you can find me on Instagram at Matt Tolstoy, M A T T T O L S T O Y. It's all just one word, no underscore, anything. Just Matt Tolstoy. Uh, my website is uh, yeah MatthewTolstoy.com. If you want to check that out, that has you know the, some descriptions and a little bit more detail about some of the things that we're talking about, like what what somatic experiencing is and and some of the background on that and the movement based things. Um, and then all of my contact info is like on that stuff. So if you either find me on Instagram, go to the website, uh, you can then find me from there. And yeah, be happy to uh, you know. And even just as you listen to this, I know some of the things that we're talking about you know, are not necessarily like immediately accessible to people. People don't know what somatic experiencing is, you know, maybe you've heard about it at best, but it's kind of vague or whatever, or how it relates with chronic pain. So even if you just have questions or something like that, I'm always happy to chat and just kind of, uh, you know, give you my two cents about how all this fits together. So yeah, if you find my contact info and, and anything comes up, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Well, Matt, I really appreciate the time. Listeners, check out Matt. At the very least, get on his Instagram, follow him. There are some fascinating stuff. Um, that you talk about. And uh, if, if that's the lowest point people learn from you, they're still going to learn a lot. So um, yeah, uh, hang out, Matt. Again, thank you so much for your time today. It was it was a pleasure to reconnect again. And uh, listeners, listen in, follow Matt. All, everything will be in the show notes. Uh, and just don't forget to rate and review the episode. Thank you. And we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast. Find more episodes like this at www.lifestyleasmedicinepodcast.com and visit www.marhealthandperformance.com and at marhealthandperformance on both Facebook and Instagram for more great content and information about programs. Have a great day and see you next time.